Welcome to another Kingdom 101 teaching. Thanks for joining me. My name is Hanson, and I bring you greetings from the ministry, Our Keeper's Awakening. If you are familiar with us, we are dedicated to the awakening of saints that we may know and fulfill our God-given Kingdom assignments. And this is what Kingdom 101 is about, is an aligning initiative so that we can have good Kingdom foundations to move on our Kingdom assignments. And if you're still not familiar with your own kingdom assignment, I pray that these teachings will help you align with the king, embrace his kingdom, so that you may then know and receive your kingdom assignments. Let's pray and get into today's teaching. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord. I just declare the word of the kingdom into every heart that has been made ready by you. Holy Spirit, empower me, enable me, and also speak to your people in a way that they will understand and hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today's teaching is entitled, Where the Rubber Meets the Road. Alternatively, some use the phrase, When the Rubber Hits the Road. I believe it comes from the car industry, where they make tires, they make these wheels, and you know that tires are the only contact that the car or the vehicle has with the road. Well, the engineers, the designers, the manufacturers will do all they can to ensure the best performance and safety. And this is to be on all road conditions as well as in all weather conditions. But you never really know until that time of reckoning, when push comes to shove. When the rubber, the tire, hits the road, where the rubber meets that contact, that road, that's the only time that you will know how the tire or the tires will perform. Well, this is what happens in our passage today in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 23. Jesus and his disciples are within a multitude, and the Father brings a son with an epileptic condition. Well, later we will know and find out that from this passage, this boy was demon-possessed. The disciples find themselves in this situation where the rubber meets the road. When that crunch time comes, how did they fare? How did they perform? Well, the father brings a complaint, in fact, a request to Jesus saying, Look, your guys, they were not able to cast out this demon. Well, promptly then Jesus takes over that situation and he casts out that demon and that's what the story is about. And we will explore the passage in a greater detail in a very short while. This account is recorded not only in Matthew but also in Mark and Luke. And interestingly, when you look at the different records, like for example, in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 42, it is the shortest account. There's a problem, Jesus casts out the demon, and it's done. So I suppose you can do a teaching on deliverance down here. In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, is the longest record. And the focus is more on the Father, where he actually says, um, I have this issue. Jesus says, well, if you will believe. And the Father says, well, I believe, but help my unbelief. And you can do an entire teaching on faith. And we will talk about faith in a very, very short while. But in Matthew, which is our text, it focuses on the disciples. There's a longer discourse about the disciples, Jesus teaching his disciples, and it's about discipleship. 
And that is how I would like to approach this passage because Matthew is a kingdom manual. It's about the king and his kingdom. And I believe Jesus wants the representatives of the kingdom, his disciples, his people, to understand a lesson that would be deeper and more applicable for not just the disciples of his day, but for you as well as for me. You know, the word discipleship, it sounds right, it sounds good. It's entirely critical for the church today, and we all say agree, we will say amen. But you see, at the end of the day, how will we as disciples fare when we come against challenges, when we meet a certain situation? Now, we never know, right? We won't know the discipleship training that we go through, how good it is, or how well we would perform until the rubber meets the road. And so I'm going to use this picture of the tire or the wheel as it spins round and round. We will start with the road. That's where that contact point is. That's where the critical moment is for all of us as disciples, where the rubber meets the road. From that point, we will see what the result is, how we will fare, how we perform in certain situations. Well, from the result, then we can do a review. From the review, a realignment that we can then check our readiness once more to be back on the road. So can you see that this cycle, it moves round and round. And I want to suggest to you that this is the way that we can be trained, that we can grow in the things of the kingdom, that we can address the issues of faith as we learn from this passage. So let's jump in right away. Let's start with the road. That contact point where the rubber meets the road. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, Jesus, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples." Let's just pause there for a moment. Where the rubber meets the road, as I've already mentioned, tires are tested on the road. Disciples are tested on assignments. On the road, on assignment. This is where the real thing happens. This is where everything comes to a point, right? That moment of reckoning. This is where we move from a discipleship class into a disciple mode. You know, presenting about the kingdom is one thing, but representing the king on the road is totally yet another. It's one thing to be in the safety of the church. It's totally yet another when you are out there in the area of operation. Sometimes we think that, oh, you know, the anointing is only in the church. But what about the anointing wherever we go, right? You see, this is where the rubber meets the road. How will we hold up? How will our tire of discipleship, how will our faith hold up? Will we skid? Will we have traction? Will we perform okay or will we crash? 
I like this situation because Jesus and his top students were not around. Remember, they had come to the multitude, and this takes place after Jesus' transfiguration with his three disciples, presumably his top students, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. On the next day, this is what Luke chapter 9, verse 37 records. Jesus and his three disciples, they were away and suddenly the rest find themselves in this rather interesting moment. And this is what I want to say to you. Sometimes, oftentimes, it is easier to push the more anointed ones forward. We've got to stop having that kind of a mentality. Oh, you know, push the Peter, the James, and the John. These are the ones closest to Jesus. They are the more anointed, more spiritual. They know better. They've got better theology. Well, Jesus, I believe, allowed something to happen down here. What happens when you are alone? What happens when you are the one that has to meet with that situation, when the rubber meets the road? How will you fare? You know, today there's just too much of theoretical discipleship. We need to get back on the road with Jesus. We have too much of knowledge, but not enough application. We have so much of teaching, but not enough obedience. In our social media setting, we've got lots of armchair critiques, right? So easy. Just look at an article, comment, and say this, and say that. But we do not have enough soldiers in battle. And you don't even need a demonic situation for this. Although, that was my own experience. You know, way back when I was just coming back into the faith once more, and I was excited about the Word of God. I loved the things that I discovered and I said, wow, this is so good and that is so good. But those of you who know my story, the Lord allowed a spiritual demonic situation to happen right in my bedroom. And when at that moment, when the rubber met the road, I didn't know what to do. I panicked. I was so fearful. And to just give you a very, very short account, What happened in my bedroom was that my bedside table shifted a 90 degrees. I had no idea what to do. I had to call for the professional soldier. I had to call for the pastor. And when they came down, and when they came to my room, and they prayed, and they anointed the room with oil, sang, and did everything, after that, they said to me, and they told my wife, together, we want you to shift that table back. I was still so fearful. And you see, when the rubber hits the road, how will you fare? How would you respond? You know, we can have all this head knowledge, but until we are on the road, until we are on some assignment, we will never know how that theory will become practice. See, tires are tested on the road. Disciples are tested on assignments. If we want to move and live as disciples, And if we are aware of this principle, then we will see that even the simplest of assignments can reveal many things. When the rubber hits the road, where the rubber meets the road, how will we respond? In our marriage, in our parenting journey, when we are at work, where we are moving on the things of the ministry. And that's where everything comes to a hilt, is it not? It's not just in the classroom. It's not just another seminar, not another teaching. You will never know until you are on the road. Tires are tested on the road. Disciples 
are tested on assignments. And so I want to encourage you, my brother and my sister, get on the road. Don't be afraid to be on the road with Jesus and for Jesus. And you will see that there are times that the Lord, the Master, will deliberately just hold back a little bit so that you can discover what you truly know and how you will truly respond, what that result would be. So the father of the son brought the boy, the demon-possessed boy. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 16, he said, So I brought him to your disciples. Jesus, these are your disciples. I would expect a lot more of them. But they could not cure him. Now, this is a big surprise, don't you think? Because this was not the disciples' first account or first encounter with demons. They've seen Jesus cast out demons many times. I want to believe that Jesus, after sending them out in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, he said, I give you power, I give you authority over all these demons. I want to believe that they too, they had cast out demons before. But here I notice something. It's one thing to observe Jesus in action and to look at other people in action. It's one thing to move under supervision, but it's totally another when you are on your own. See, agreeing is easy, but applying, that's a different story, right? In agreeing, we say, Amen, but when we have to apply, we say, Oh man. <laughs> being shown the deep is one thing, but being thrown into the deep is a totally different story. That is where the rubber meets the road. What would that result be? If you were to be on the road with Jesus, or maybe Jesus says, now this is what I want you to do. What if your pastor sends you out? What if your cell leader says, now this day, I want you to be doing something here. What do you find yourself in this situation? What would that result be? You would never know until the rubber meets the road. And so here's a little note for those of us who are disciple makers or who are mentors. I struggle with this and I'm still trying to learn this the best I can. Be comfortable with letting your charges, your disciples, make mistakes or fail. Be comfortable. Just let them try it and let them bungle, let them trip, let them fall, let them fail. I know this is not easy. I told you, I struggle with this. Because when they fail or when they mess up, I know you are the one that has to pick up the pieces or clean up the mess. Right? Jesus himself had to step in and cast out that demon. It is always easier for me or for yourself to, to do it. It saves time. It's quicker. It's neater. But the truth is this. If we keep doing it ourselves, then no one will get to learn anything. And Jesus, the master of all masters, knows this the best. And that's why he was happy. He would move away on his own. He would have a break on his own. And he would like to see the disciples on their own to see how they would respond. So if you're discipling someone, don't do everything for them. Assign things to them, small tasks, and let it show up. Let it reveal that result when they are on the road with or without you. Take them on the road, but let them discover for themselves. 
And here's a note to you who are disciples, who are learning. And it doesn't matter which stage you are at, whether you are a new disciple or a more seasoned one. Can I say this to you? Let me encourage you. It's okay to make mistakes. It's even okay to fail. I know this is the scariest thing. No one wants to make any mistake, least of all, fail. But I'll tell you that I've failed so many times. I've had faith failures time and again. But that's where the rubber meets the road. Failing is a good experience. Read the Bible. You'll see so many accounts of so many men and women of God who have failed. Read the testimonies. Don't just look at the successes. Look at the moments where we've come to a point where we just cry out and we don't even know what happened or how it happened or why it never happened. Failing is a good experience. Making mistakes is a good experience. That's the best way. That's the fastest way to learn. And so the first point, get on the road because that's where you will then yield a certain result. It may not always be positive. Most of the time, in fact, we will encounter a negative result, but it is an okay experience. Can I say this to you? Can I encourage you? It is an okay experience. In fact, it's a great experience because in that experience of a mistake or of a failure, that's the best time for a review. That's the best time for a debrief. And this is what we see in this account. The disciples failed. And when everything was over, in verse 19, the disciples then came to Jesus privately and they asked and said to him, why could we not cast it out? Why? What happened out there? You see, failures are good. It gives us an opportunity to question, to wonder what happened back there. Why? Why did it happen? Why did it not happen? It pushes us back to the Lord. And so, review with Jesus. Go back to Him. This is what we call an alignment check. If you do everything well and always good, then chances are you may not want to check back with Jesus all this time, right? You know, you'll start to think, I can do this already. I don't need you anymore, Lord. And that would be the worst thing ever. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus will let us fail all the time, but I'm saying it's always good to check in and check back with Jesus, with your master. Today, there are just so many master classes, right? Why? Because we want to check in with the expert. We want to check in with our mentor. And Jesus is our mentor and our master. Have your private sessions with him. The disciples ask him privately because outside, maybe they had a loss of face. They knew that they had failed in front of everyone publicly. And can I tell you, my friends, if you have had that experience, Check in with Jesus privately. Ask all your questions. Wrestle. Process. Do you remember that little story I shared with you just now? When I failed at that moment when the rubber met that road, I had so much knowledge in my head, but I didn't know how to apply. When the pastor left my home that evening, I had a thousand and one questions. 
I had to check in with the Lord. I wrestled. I struggled. I said, Lord, I know all these things. How come when the rubber met the road, I didn't know what to do? I had to call for help. Lord, you've got to show me. Tell me what I did wrong or what didn't I do that was wrong. Jesus knows exactly the problem. He knows exactly the issue. He knows exactly what needs to be fixed. For one, he would show us all you had was theory. You need to convert that into practice. For another, maybe we began or the disciples themselves began to rely on a method. You know how we love the step one, step two, step three. But God cannot be put in the box. We always say that. And yet sometimes we like the one, two, three, four, five, six. Are we relying on the method suddenly instead of relying on the master? Who knows if pride might have come in. Maybe we had presumed on something. The disciples thought, I can do this, no problem. And Jesus had to speak to them and would have to tell them, come on, don't let it get to your head. And many times we will rely on ourselves to think that we've got this already packed down. You know, I've got it all done. I've memorized this front to back and back to front. Who knows, maybe for some of us, there could be unresolved hurts, bitterness, unforgiveness that would have blocked a move of the faith that we have in God or a move of God in and through what He wants to do through us. And that's why we tell so many people often, get your alignment check done. You want to move on the assignment? Don't let a misalignment hold back what you need to do on the assignment. Perhaps it could be a lack of knowledge, maybe too much knowledge. Maybe I'm thinking too much. That's my issue, right? Before I do anything, I'm thinking one, two, A, B, C. You know, is it this? Is it that? I'm over planning. I mean, God is saying, look, I want you to plan, but can you leave room? Let me move. Don't choke me into a corner. Or maybe I'm not thinking enough. I'm just recklessly rushing out there. Or I'm not planning at all that I can then commit that plans unto the Lord. So can you see, it's not this end, it's not that end. But the Lord would show us if we would review with Him in that private session, in that master class. Maybe I'm too legalistic. Maybe I'm too liberal. How would I know? It's so tough for me to stay on that straight and narrow. I veer from side to side, left to the right. And only my master can look at my misalignment and point out to me what the issue is. But you will never know until you get on the road. When the rubber meets the road, when you get that result and then you go back that, with that result back to the drawing board, back for adjustments, back for realignment. And in Archippus' awakening language, we would say, perhaps it's a time to repent, right? To review and to say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry about this. You know, I presume this or that. And in that repentance, we find a restoration, which is a realignment. And later on, a refinement that will come, which is the test again, where we will be sent out once more to see whether the adjustment did anything for us. So first the road, next the result, and thirdly, a review. And this is where we come to the meat, the realignment, the issue at hand. Sometimes I bring my car back to the mechanic, back to the workshop, and I can't figure out why is it 
I'm hearing a noise here, or I'm feeling that something is not right, but I just don't know what it is. And when I bring it back to the mechanic, I marvel, you know, when I tell him, he says, okay, let's start the engine, and we start the engine, he brings it for a little round, a little drive, and immediately he can tell me, this is the issue. Just like that. He can just spot it so quickly. And similarly, Jesus does that with the disciples. They ask him, why could we not cast the demon out? And he pointed it out immediately. It was a faith issue. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. And in some versions, because of your little faith. Now, depending on which manuscript the translators translate this one phrase, it can be read as unbelief or little faith. Well, Jesus goes on, For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So is it unbelief or is it little faith? Well, let's look at the context first before we dive a little bit more deeply into unpacking these two translations. The context seems to suggest a comparison of size or amount. And the comparison is made with a mustard seed. Now remember, right, every time you want to make an alignment check, you need to have a reference point. And Jesus provides this reference point, a mustard seed, a grain of mustard, which is the smallest of all seeds. Now, what does he compare this little seed with? He contrasts it with a mountain. Now, remember, they just came back from the Mount of Transfiguration. And if we understand correctly, Jesus might have been pointing to that mountain over there. Now look at this huge mountain, the tallest, the highest peak. I have just come down from this peak. Look at this huge mountain. Now all you need is this mustard seed, this small little bit, this mustard seed compared to that mountain. And now, so is it no faith, unbelief, or is it little faith? Is it lots of faith, great faith, or is it no faith at all? Now we have to ask this question. How do you even measure faith in the first place? I've tried for all these years. It's the toughest thing. How do you measure something that is almost impossible to measure? And if you cannot measure faith, then how do you know what would be that shortfall? Are you struggling with this? I've struggled with this all my time as a believer. But if we understand that Jesus, who is the master, the rabbi, the teacher, then in typical rabbinic fashion, Jesus was simply using hyperbolic comparison and contrast. And what does that mean? It means that he would, these teachers would exaggerate, push it to the limit, push it to the furthest point, so that as a student, you look at it and you're like, Oh, wow, I get it now. I, I can see this. I mean, look at this small little grain compared to this whole mountain. That exaggeration, that hyperbole. I believe Jesus was just using that as a rabbinic device. Let me give you an example. 
in Matthew, we've already seen two mentions of Jesus where he credited the centurion as well as the Syrophoenician woman for having great faith. Now, how do you measure that great faith? Again, if you apply this principle of hyperbole and comparison and contrast, Jesus was essentially saying this, compared to your faith, Israel, come on, you are people of God. You are children of the Most High. You've seen me, experienced me. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the deliverance. You should be exhibiting this kind of faith. But compared to you guys, their faith is considered so great. These are Gentiles. Can you see? So between the people of the kingdom versus the people who are not of the kingdom, the Gentiles, great faith. So hold this in our hearts and in our minds as we dive more deeply into this teaching. Firstly, let's consider unbelief. Because of your unbelief. Now, that word literally can mean no faith from the Greek. Now, I believe Jesus, if you look at this translation, then he might have been paralleling with a statement he made just a little bit earlier. And when the father came to Jesus with the complaint, Jesus replied to him saying this, O faithless and perverse generation. Faithless, which means no faith. Because of your unbelief, no faith. Unbelief, your non-belief. Now this statement was directed at the Father and it's made much clearer in the account in Mark chapter 9. Now remember the multitudes were also there. So everyone was listening to this, but it was directed to one person, but everyone was able to hear this. In Mark chapter 9, 23 to 24, Jesus said to the Father, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believe. Now how did the Father reply? Immediately he cried out, he said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now hold that for a moment, right? I believe. In other words, I have faith. But help my no faith. So which is it? Do I have faith or do I not have faith? Now the disciples were also there listening in. And I believe this statement was also meant for them. Because the disciples would have already believed in Jesus. Which means they had faith. But they also had unbelief. Jesus said, because of your unbelief. So did they have faith or did they have no faith? And the answer is yes. You can have faith and yet not have faith. That's true for you and that is true for me. So how do we understand unbelief in a situation like this? Let me help you and suggest. Perhaps it is the way we compartmentalize our faith. You notice, we can believe very strongly in some areas and yet not believe in some other area. You know, we can have faith in so many things, right? In church, we can shout amen and be so full of faith and after that, have so little faith or no faith in other areas like finance, healing, or in this case, deliverance. I believe this, Lord, but help me believe this. So unbelief can also be defined simply as knowing something to be true but lacking the conviction 
to believe that fully. Often, we compartmentalize our faith. And the disciples had great faith in Jesus in some areas, and yet not have faith in this certain area. The disciples knew they had authority to cast out demons, but somehow, in this situation, they were not sufficiently convicted that they were able to. And it could be for a host of reasons. Perhaps Jesus was not with them, and suddenly their faith level just dropped. Or maybe, again, it is only for the anointed ones, maybe not for us. Our top students are not here. I need to have a little bit more encouragement, some faith support. And it's not wrong to expect that, but there are many moments where we will be expected to exercise faith by ourselves in the situations on our own. How's your faith? Do you have unbelief also, where you believe in one area but not in another area? Compartmentalized faith. I pray that we will have the fullest of faith to exercise that faith in every area of our lives and in any assignment that He sends us out on, where the rubber meets the road. How about little faith then in another translation? Because of your little faith. Now, if we understand this idea of comparison correctly, then it's not so much then the amount of faith. It was just used to give the people a picture of the size, the amount. But how do you see faith in that sense, right? It's very difficult. It's not so much, I believe, the amount of faith, but the object of our faith. Let me say that once more for us. Oftentimes, we look at an amount and it's easier to quantify it when we can see it. But it's not really the amount or the size, but the object of our faith. If we are not careful, some people place more faith in faith than they place their faith in God. I hope you understand what I mean by that, right? There are many who will go, I, I must have faith. And they're trying to drum up that faith, generate that faith, because their faith is in having faith, but not so much their faith to be having faith in God. Jesus was saying to the disciples, you've got to understand this difference. It's not just faith and I believe, I believe, you know, trying to, to force yourself to believe. No. It's knowing who you're believing in, what the one that you're believing in can do, and who he is. And you don't need to have a lot of faith where that's concerned. All you need to know is who Jesus is, who God is, what Jesus is capable of, what God is capable of. And the smallest amount, just like a little mustard seed. It's all you need to have in the person of that faith, in the object of faith, and you can move mountains. You know, I, I have been credited, I have been encouraged where people say, Hanson, you've got so much faith. You've got great faith. Can I say something to you right now? It's going on recording. I dare not even accept that accolade. I dare not say that I have a lot of faith or I have great faith. 
Because according to this teaching, I know what's the right thing to say. It's not my faith that is great. It is my God who is great. That little faith placed in a great God makes it a great faith. Are you hearing this? Someone out there needs to hear this today. That little faith placed in a great God makes it into a great faith. So many have seen the decisions that we make. We homeschool, we trust God with our family size, we leave the business to move into a full-time ministry capacity, we leave a pastoral position to start Archippus Awakening, to live by faith, not knowing what the next day is going to be. Is that great faith? I dare not even say that, I keep telling you. What faith is that if it is not placed and directed to the right object of faith? My God is a great God. And time and again, I have to remind myself of this statement and of this truth. Because the moment I start to think of myself having great faith, pride comes in. I rely on my great faith more than I rely on that little faith that is put on a great God. And here, this teaching by Jesus, I want to believe that what he's saying is this. Your little faith, you have faith. It's not that you have no faith. Your little faith in this situation is actually a misplaced faith. If unbelief is compartmentalized faith, then I want to believe that little faith is then misplaced faith. You're putting faith in the wrong things. You've shifted from Jesus to yourself, to your experience, to your ability, to a method, to something else other than God. And however much you rely on that, that's little faith. That's nothing even. You've got to shift that faith back to the right object again. Do you have misplaced faith? I think it needs a bit of a realignment, don't you think? Whether is it compartmentalized or is misplaced, we need to shift it back to Jesus once more. But let's go on. Jesus didn't just talk about faith in this passage. He mentions two other things. In verse 21, However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, what do prayer and fasting have to do with faith? Well, let's get into a little bit of a textual understanding first. Do you know in Matthew 21, some of your Bibles will have a little footnote to say, this verse does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. If you read in some other later manuscripts, versions and translations, you won't even find this verse there. And it's not because these translations are not as inspired. It's just that when you have more discovered later, um, earlier manuscripts rather, in these later translations, this was not there, they believe, in the original. It was actually quoted first in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, where Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. But even in Mark, fasting, that word, was added. It was only prayer in the first place. But it is not inconsistent in any way. Why? Prayer essentially is aligning with God. Prayer 
acknowledges a reliance on God through intimacy with God. So can you see? If faith, for it not to be compartmentalized or misplaced, that's totally consistent with prayer, which is aligning with God, that we can then have our faith through prayer according to the will and the purposes and the word of God to be aligned with him, that it can be the correct type of faith. Well, to the Jews, fasting is also very closely associated with prayer. So when you mention prayer, fasting comes along. It realigns us. It de-aligns us from the things of the world, from our reliance on what is in the physical, in the flesh, and in the material, to what is spiritual, which again builds up our prayer life and strengthens, as it were, the faith that we have in God and upon God. So prayer and fasting, definitely very consistent with this idea and the issue of faith. But bear in mind, prayer and fasting is done out of a relationship with who God is, with who Jesus is, just as faith is about a relationship also with God. It's not meant to be a religious ritual, right? Faith is based on knowing and believing who God is and what He can do. And so through prayer and fasting, it then directs us back to, again, the object of our faith. So my dear brothers and sisters, see this, that faith, prayer, and fasting are intricately linked. And when Jesus says, this kind doesn't go out, right? This kind can't be addressed except through prayer and fasting. What he's saying is this, that if you want to increase that faith, strengthen that faith, then get back to the prayer room, get back to fasting, get back to a relationship with God because those that are of a spiritual level, of a different platform, you need to then anchor your faith even more in the person and the things of God. Now, this is again another indication that perhaps the disciples were lacking in their prayer and their fasting. And well, Jesus told them when the bridegroom is here, you don't really have to fast, right? So I suppose you can cut them some slack there. But Jesus meant exactly the same thing to them. Make sure you pray. Make sure you are connected with the Lord so that your faith is rightly placed in God. Don't rely on yourself. Now, if we know this and understand this, then the Lord says, nothing, nothing, will be impossible for you. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as the mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. What is this mountain? You know, Jesus, the teacher of all teachers, I told you he's the best, right? You've got this mountain as a backdrop. He just came down, just one day next. So he points to this mountain and says, look at this mountain. I want you to see this. It's so huge. But I'm saying, if you have the right faith, you're able to move this. This is another Jewish idiomatic expression. This word mountain, the moving of mountains, refers to all kinds of challenges. Not just demonic deliverance, but all kinds of mountains, difficulties, challenges. So the principle is this that if you have the right faith, that your faith is correctly focused on the object of who God is, 
then this can be applied to all difficulties and challenges. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing will be impossible for you simply means you can overcome all difficulties and challenges. Faith in God can move and can even remove challenges. The prayer of faith of a righteous man avails much. That's where we read in James chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. So if you pray with the kind of faith in God, you are able to remove these challenges, the mountains and the difficulties. As I've already mentioned, Jesus said this kind, this kind indicates a different category, a different level. Friends, spiritual battles require a different intensity of focus and of prayer and through fasting. The greater the challenge you have, the greater the level of difficulty, the more you need to press in to know who God is and what He's able to do. And that you do through prayer, through fasting, holding on to His Word, knowing who He is and exercising that faith, placing our faith in Him. Now that's for the moving and the removing. But faith in God also enables you to bear through and overcome these challenges and difficulties. Not all challenges can be moved. I know Jesus spoke these words and you can take it literally, but let's understand the principle. Certain challenges cannot be prayed away and it is not because you have no faith. Let me give you a biblical example in the person of Jesus. Did Jesus face the cross? Yes. Was it a difficulty and a challenge? Yes. Did he pray? Yes. Did he have faith? Definitely. Could he pray it away? No. But he had faith in God to help him see through that challenge, that mountain. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 40. All the saints there will acknowledge for their faith despite persecution and even death. Did they have faith? Definitely. Hebrews chapter 11 is about faith. Did they remove the mountains? Not all of them. Not every mountain was removed, but every mountain was overcome because of their faith. Was Paul a man of faith? Yes. And yet, when he prayed for God to remove that huge mountain and that difficulty in the thorn, in the flesh, and his infirmities, were these removed? No. Paul accepted these with faith, by faith, and he overcame these. I thought it's important to add this note because I want you to be careful of a hyper-faith movement or something that the word of faith teaches that if you are not careful with this kind of a teaching, now let me just be clear here, it's good that it teaches us to exercise faith, to take God at His word, and I would support that. But when you push it to an extreme, which is a hyper understanding of what faith is, then it becomes a reckless and a presumptuous faith, that God must do it no matter what. Remember, that was what the devil tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. 
He told Jesus that if you would just hold on to the Word of God, just jump off right now, throw yourself off, the angels will protect you. Now, did Jesus have faith? Yes. But he rebuked the devil and asked him to go away. This is not a license for us to name it and to claim it. But our exercising of faith must be according to the will and the purposes of God. The exercising of our faith and our prayers of faith is also not for our own selfish agenda or for our pleasures or for our own desires. That's why James in chapter 4 verse 3 to say that you ask, you do not receive because you're asking with the wrong motive. So since this is a teaching on the issue of faith, I thought that this would be helpful as a caution that as we exercise faith and place our faith in the person of who Jesus is, as we move on kingdom assignments, may it help us overcome mountains, move mountains, but according to a right kingdom principle as we move on kingdom assignments. I want to close with a final point which is about readiness. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus answered and said to the Father, to the multitudes, and within earshot of the disciples, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Of course, he rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and that child was cured from that very hour faithless and perverse generation. The Jews would have known this phrase so well. Jesus quoted directly from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, as well as 20, where Moses taught them this song and declared that there will come a time where they will corrupt themselves. They will be a perverse and a crooked generation. In verse 20, he then explains that they are crooked and perverse because in them, there would be no faith. They will not believe in God nor the Messiah to come. Now, Jesus was directing this to the Father's comment about the disciples. And in a way, he was telling the Father to have a personal faith. But at the same time, it was an indictment against the people of God, the multitudes, that they were a faithless and a perverse generation. And Jesus was almost saying to them, I want you to repent because you are perverse, and I want you to believe because you are faithless, and you have to believe in me so that you can be saved from this, that you can then come into my kingdom. But I want you to imagine the reaction of the disciples. I believe this was also a rebuke against and to the disciples. Why? Jesus expected them to already be operationally ready by that time, but they were not. And we see this from that phrase, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? There was an urgency for the people to repent because the kingdom was at hand and is at hand. But to the disciples, it was a statement of urgency to say, you should be ready by now. How long do you need me to be with you? How long can I put up with your non-readiness? See, time was running out. Jesus would not be with them much longer. 
This statement is sandwiched between two announcements of his impending death. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he already told them that he would have to die. Following this passage, our passage today, in verses 22 and 23, is another announcement that he will be killed and he will not be with them much longer. And so he was telling the disciples, How long? Time is running out. I will not be with you much longer. My dear friends, the message to us is just as urgent. A faithless generation needs a faith-filled church. Do you hear this? A faithless generation needs a faith-filled church. For the disciples, Jesus was leaving. For us, Jesus is coming soon. How long more? I almost hear the Master saying to each of us right now, how long more before we are ready to move on kingdom assignments? How long more does Jesus have to wait because the days are urgent, the time is short? We should be eating meat, but we are still feeding on milk. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us we ought to be teachers by now. We should be mentors, disciple makers, fellow soldiers on mission. But so many are still struggling with baby faith, theoretical faith, little faith, no faith. How long more, my brothers and my sisters? How long more, fellow soldiers? How long more, dear occupuses, for us to know and to receive and to fulfill our kingdom assignments? How many more seminars do we need to attend? How many more messages do we need to listen to? How long more? How long? How long? And this indicates a readiness that the church needs to be at but we are not there at this moment. A faithless generation, a perverse generation, needs a faith-filled church. Where the rubber meets the road, when the rubber hits the road, how will you fare? How will I fare? How does the church of Jesus Christ fare today, in this time, and in this season? Can you see that this cycle of discipleship, this training from the road to the result, to the review, to the realignment, to the readiness, it keeps going on as time keeps moving on, but time is running out. I want to close with this challenge for you, as well as for myself and for everyone listening in. Are you on the road? Or are you trying to avoid the road? Tires are tested on the road. Disciples are tested on assignment. I encourage you, I challenge you, get on the road. Be willing to be on mission because that's where the rubber meets the road. And on the road is where the result will be revealed. But don't be afraid of mistakes or failures. Whatever the result is, I know I don't do it perfectly and neither do you. But with that result, get back to Jesus. Review with our Master and our King privately. Keep checking with our Master so that He can point out the issue. And whatever it is, be willing 
for that realignment to adjust, whether is it compartmentalized faith or misplaced faith, would you realign through prayer, through fasting, through a relationship once more, not to have faith in faith, but to have faith in the king of the kingdom that we belong to. How long more? Let's be ready for kingdom assignments. Let's be ready to get back onto that road. Let that tire be tested on the road. Let disciples be tested on the assignment that we can be found, not faithless and perverse, but faithful and wise as servants of the king and of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, Lord. And this is not a word of condemnation of our no faith or our little faith. But I pray that at this point, faith will arise. Not in a teaching, but in you, in who you are, Lord. I pray against condemnation. I pray against fear of failure, of mistakes. I pray boldness and courage for us to be on the road because that's where disciples are tested and refined. So Lord, be with me and be with everyone listening in, Lord where the rubber meets the road, empower us, enable us. And whatever the result is, Lord, we know it all points back to you. If it's not so good, teach us, Lord. But where we do okay, receive all glory. And we thank you and bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining me for this Kingdom 101 teaching. This is Hanson signing off. Until the next Kingdom teaching. God bless you.